Welcome to Words First, talking text in opera. I don't report the news on this podcast very often, but I'd like to highlight a couple of things happening in the world of operatic words. First, I'd like to take a moment to say a few words about British opera scholar Amanda Holden, who died on September 7th at the age of 73. As well as scholar and dramaturg, she was also a librettist and translator. Her first opera translation was in 1985, Don Giovanni for Jonathan Miller at E&O. She went on to create more than 60 opera translations. Director David Pountney said of her translations in his obituary in The Guardian. She was widely praised for her acute sense of style, for her adroit rhyming, and for her profound musicality, which always directed her precise linguistic choices. He went on to say, She was a real expert in this peculiarly nuanced branch of translation, where the translator must not only capture the style and sense of the original, but must also fit the result perfectly to the given rhythm of the music, also being sensitive to the way that the choice of vowel acutely influences the ability to sing a particular passage freely and expressively. She is perhaps most well-known as the instrumental orchestrator of the Viking Opera Guide through Penguin Books. But she also wrote a small passel of original libretti. These include Bliss in 2010 with composer Brett Dean and The Silver Tassie in 2000 with Mark Anthony Turnage, which won her an Olivier Award. I wish that I'd known more about her and her work before her death, and my thoughts are with her family and friends at this sad time. I also want to report a bit of news that came across my feed yesterday morning concerning Stephen Sondheim. He's on my mind quite a bit right now since I'm preparing for a production of A Little Night Music in Arizona in the winter. Sondheim is 91, and is currently writing another show with playwright David Ives called Square One. There was a reading last week, and he hopes that it will be premiered next year. This makes me giddy, as I'm sure it does a fair few of you. This week's episode is with a woman new to libretto writing. Over the course of the last two seasons, I've spoken to quite a few people who were veering into opera for the first or nearly the first time. Karen Chilton in the last episode, plus Jacqueline Goldfinger, Mina Salapur, Roberta Gumbel, Lorene Carey, and Kanika Ambrose, who we bring up in this episode. So many of these writers are playwrights first, and Amanda Quaid is no exception— in fact, The Extinctionist, commissioned by Heartbeat Opera and composed by Daniel Schlossberg, is an adaptation of her play by the same name. I think the most interesting thing in talking to new librettists is their origin story. I love hearing how someone finds opera, because all of our stories are the same and wildly different. I'm always amazed that most of us in the art form had personalities and styles that lined up with opera before we ever found it, and in our discovery, we found that perfect fitting outfit for the first time. Amanda Quaid is a playwright and actor from New York City, who found playwriting when she was pregnant with her daughter. We talk about that and more in this interview from July 7th, 2021. Amanda, welcome to Words First. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. 
Thank you for having me. So you're an actor and writer living in New York City, and I'm basically quoting your website here. You've worked on and off Broadway and at regional theaters around the country, as well as in film and television. And and I I love one of the things, as I was doing a little research on you yesterday, uh, I love that your bio on your website says that you began playwriting in 2018 while you were pregnant with your daughter. Can you talk about the significance of that, of starting writing while you were going through this major transition? I'd always written. Uh, I'd written privately. I'd written plays to, as I told myself, to kind of explore structure and understand it more, I think, as an actor. I'm I'm someone, I think, who has a hard time with feeling legitimate. If I didn't go to school for something, if I don't have a piece of paper that says I've, I've uh, yeah. studied it. And so uh, I was very hesitant about calling myself a playwright or calling myself a writer. I also thought that to be a writer, you needed to be doing it every single day and doing it when you didn't feel like it. And I had this real idea about it. And um, something about becoming a parent, um, maybe specifically becoming a mother, I, I I just got a little bit bolder and I got a little bit more... Um, uh, I examined how I was spending my time in a different way because I didn't have a lot of time. So when she's on a nap, what do I feel like doing? I, I felt like like writing uh, um, an adaptation of Medea or whatever it was I was working on. Um, and um, no, no, no connection there. But I, um, I, I just got a little bit braver about starting to to share that work and send it out in the world. And um, and and it was it was really thrilling to start to hear actors embody it when it was something I'd done in private for so long. That's really beautiful, actually. And I think there's some there is something about um, the thought of and, and I'll, I'll say right now that I've, I've never birthed a child. I, I have a stepdaughter, but um, the, but I have never pushed a child out of my body. But I, I can imagine that the thought that just the 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 anticipation of doing something so huge um, allows that bravery to sort of come in. I think that's right. Yeah, you sort of it, it was a time of reckoning with what I was capable of doing and 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 kind of stepping a little bit more into, I think, taking taking responsibility for who I wanted to be as an artist and how I wanted to spend my time. Do you think, and, and I have thoughts about this just based on what I've looked at, but I, I want to hear your thoughts on, on sort of the themes of your writing. I mean, do you think all of your plays have an underlying theme or do you feel like you write all over the board? I, I noticed that that you play with extinction and climate change and, and, and our changing world. And do you feel that as, as a um, sort of a mandate for your work or do you just, uh, does it just come as it comes? Ecology is a big interest of mine mm-hmm. and and climate change, yes, is a political phenomenon, but also I think as a as a personal story and the personal stories that exist within it, um, I just find it really really endlessly compelling um, trying to make those stories personal and and um, you know writing about something that's so kind of abstract to a lot of people, finding a way to make it uh, something that they can relate to and get inside of. But I wouldn't say that it's a that it's a mandate. I, I think what my work tends to have in common is some some link between the, the human world and the the more than human world, whether that's the environment or animals or um, or whatever it may be. Uh, I'm also really, really interested in in myth and mm-hmm. contemporary take on myth, uh, or rather the presence of the mythic in contemporary life. That's another big interest of mine. I think they kind of work together, don't they? Like thinking about, you know, are the greater world surrounding humans and then thinking about myth. It feels like it, they kind of weave into each other a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, they do for me. Um, 
So as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be talking to you right now because you're at the beginning of your opera career and uh, as a writer. And, and I've spoken to several, uh, um, several playwrights and uh, some some uh, lyricists actually as well who who have sort of taken a little bit of a left turn I, I call it a left turn because I feel like I took a left turn into opera I feel like all of us who were somewhere else and then all of a sudden we're like oh look <laughs> this exists too um, take that little left turn and uh, before you began adapting the libretto for the extinctionist which we'll talk about in detail here in a second what was your relationship with opera what did you know about it or, or <laughs> feel about it Growing up, my mom would go to opera um, sometimes, and she loved Verdi. And I have this this real memory of her. She used to kind of do aerobics on a home trampoline, and she would be bouncing with her weights to Quasto e Quello. She like loved the, the all, everything in, in Rigoletto and Verdi and um, La Traviata, and she she just would listen to it uh, on repeat. So that was my first exposure to opera. Was it kind of wafting through the house? These very kind of tuneful scores. And um, then in my like mid-teens to early 20s, I had a boyfriend who happened to love opera as a teenager. And we would go and get standing room tickets to the Met. You know, we'd wait in, in line on, on a Saturday. And this was like our wild teenage night out was <laughs> to go stand, stand in the Met. And um, I was really awed by that. I, I know many people dislike their first exposure to opera because it seems elite. Um, I think for me, I, the, the grandeur of it and the velvet seats and the chandeliers and the costumes and the, the kind of ritual of it was something I was just really, um, I like to be there in a way. Yeah. It felt very ennobling. Um, and, and also as a kind of anthropological world, I was really interested in, in the the men who go to Wagner, you know, and who will look at you if you blink, you know, and shush <laughs> you and, and, and the booing. I, I was, I loved the booing. I have to say, because I, in theater, you always kind of get an, an A for effort, you know, right, <laughs> and, it, right. and the first time I went to an opening night of an opera and the set designer was booed, you know, and I turned to the person next to me who was booing. I said, why are you booing? And he said, because the designer made the singers uh, sing difficult arias on uneven platforms I thought, wow, to have that much that much passion and that much knowledge and that much advocacy for the singers, that's, this is this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> this this world, um, and then I kind of stopped going. It's it wasn't what I would go to for a real emotional experience. It was something I was more interested in, and so I, I just kind of fell out of it. And then when I met Louisa Prosky, um, the now former co-artistic director of Heartbeat Opera, right. she directed me in a play in 2016. And um, she, you know, the first opera I saw with Heartbeat was Lucia, and, and I had a front row seat. And it was my first time experiencing um, the voice as a physical act on my body, the, this singer's voice, I could actually feel the vibrations of it in my own skin. Um, they do opera in intimate spaces. And so that's really the whole point. And, and I, I just experienced opera on a completely different level. It wasn't about the trappings and it wasn't about the, the kind of atmosphere. It was about the, the primal connection of, of one voice on, a, on another body. And um, that got me really excited about opera in a in a visceral way. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I you know, there's something so interesting about thinking uh, you know, opera we when we do think of opera, I think the first thought that comes to our head when we're not in it or dealing with it on a on a daily basis is is that huge grand thing, right? And 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 there is 
a power that that intimacy, an intimate performance of opera has. That, and you're absolutely right. And in fact, we've talked about it on this podcast before with other people that when you're in the room with singers and dealing with them not in a huge proscenium space where you're you know hundreds of feet away, but right there, your bones vibrate with them. You know, and there there is something. Um, I, I think you're right. That visceral experience. You it, once you've experienced that, then I think opera takes on this whole other level of of emotional life. It's it's hard to it's hard to be in standing room at the Met and and experience that. But um, you know, I I think with this rise of sort of chamber opera, small opera, opera in intimate spaces, opera in alternative spaces, uh, it's it's allowed people to really experience opera that way. And I I love that that's the experience that sort of got you there. Is, is, is the Extinctionist adaptation, is this a commission or was this uh, something that it is? So how did, how did you get there? So the, the play was a one-act play for the Ensemble Studio Theatre Marathon in 2019. Mm-hmm. And Louisa came to see it and we went for a drink afterwards and she said, you know, this could really be an opera, should be an opera. And uh, I, I sort of thought, well, okay, you can take it and make it an opera. I didn't realize she wanted me to, to write a libretto, something as exotic uh, as a libretto. Um, and yeah, it was actually Heartbeat's first commission. And, uh, and that's been just a huge, huge learning curve. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, so let's talk about it. Let's uh, talk, talk to me first about the plot of The Extinctionist as a play. The Extinctionist uh, is about a woman who is trying to get pregnant with her husband and so far is unsuccessful. And she decides to turn her uh, her anxiety and ambivalence about that situation into a, a, a decisive act uh, that she's telling herself is on behalf of the planet, on behalf of, of, of other people who are on the planet, that she wants to sterilize herself. Mm. This is something some people choose to do for this reason. I think actually something like 14% of young people, uh, there was a recent study on this, cited climate change as a, as a major factor in not wanting to have children, um, those who didn't want to have children. And um, she, she, decides to go through with this. She gets pushed back from her husband and from her doctor, um, but ultimately decides to go through with the tests that will uh, allow her to do this. And then at the last minute, I'm probably giving it away, but that's okay. Uh, she, she gets a phone call from the doctor that the test came back and she's actually um, has this rare condition that renders her infertile anyway. And so the, you know, the end of it is really her reckoning with this, uh, this reality or this kind of cosmic joke that she didn't get to make this decision for herself. It was kind of made for her. Um, So on, I think on the one hand, people hear the plot and think it's really about climate change, which I don't, I don't really think it is. I think it's a story about uh, a desperate, desperate search for control in, Mm -hmm. in a world and in a body that is, that is out of one's control. Um, and and going a little bit mad in the process, and certainly the the madness is something we've we've teased out quite a lot in yeah, the libretto. That's great. This is it, it, this wasn't uh, a play from 2019. Is that is that when it uh, when it played? Um, and who who's your composer? Daniel Schlossberg. Daniel and and how did the two of you get put together? Did uh, what, did Hartbeat put the two of you together? Daniel actually compo- he he was the um, arranger for he arranged the the score for Lucia. Oh, got it. So okay. He's done a lot of work with them before. Mm-hmm. And this is set to premiere in twenty twenty two. Twenty two or twenty three that that season. Um, they're it. not sure yet where it's going to where fall. it sits. Talk to me about the differences between the play and and the. Um, and the libretto, like, where did you go? And I, I read, um, 
I read in an interview about the workshop performance that adapting this libretto was an, a, a quote, a, an opportunity to really allow the size of her, meaning the main character's conflict, to shine. Um, what what was it that you were able to tease out, and how how did you? What was the the process of taking that play and and turning it into something that would be sung? A lot of it was it, a lot of the process of adapting it emerged in conversations with with Daniel and with Louisa. Um, you know, we wanted an aria, which we don't have in 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 the theater. There was never a big monologue that she she had in private. So um, that was that was something that kind of allowed me to go more into who this person was in a in a private way, which always reveals character. Um, we also added a, another character. So now there are four. There's a best friend who's um, pregnant and who sort of serves as a foil um, vocally and also, uh, it, you know, as a as a character for the for the main woman. And um, you know, the 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 main gift here is just really getting to cut back dialogue and cut really close to the bone. And um, I listened to an interview you did with with Kanika Ambrose and. and she said something, she put into words something that I, I just recognized but had never been able to say, which is I underwrite anyway uh, as, a, as a first you know, attempt. And so uh, it was such a relief actually to know that I could be very spare and that um, Dan would be there to, to lift it and to, to do a lot of the emotional work of it. Right. Um, so I think it, I, I just trusted that and... Um, and cut a lot and then just kind of brought her her struggle a little bit more to the foreground yeah i'm, I'm always curious when playwrights start writing libretti that how how is it going from from such a solitary way of working in into just a complete and utter collaboration and and i think oftentimes it's the composer that sort of takes the lead here now you're adapting your own piece so i'm that the the power struggle may be in, in a different way but um but what was that journey like being collaborative artist because we were doing this during the lockdown or, you know, during COVID, we, we weren't, it wasn't this thing where we were up all night together with a piano and, you know, having arguments. And right. from what I've heard, the collaboration can be like, um, I wrote the libretto very much on my own and then kind of sent it out in the world to, to Dan and Louisa. And certainly we had um, a lot of discussions about, about what the intention might be for a scene here or there, but uh really it was it was an act of trust and and you know excitement to to discover what what Dan was going to come up with and i actually didn't hear the full score until we did the public workshop oh, really? at ps21 yeah, yeah yeah was that what kind of moment was that for you yeah well just in the auditions i would say was the first time i actually heard any of the music at all so i heard the aria and um you know i I, I wish I could say it was purely thrilling. To hear the music was purely thrilling. Um, to hear, for me as a writer, to hear my words not only spoken but, uh, you know, sung in this in this enormous room filling size uh, was a little mortifying, you know. And you just it's 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 one thing to be in a in a playwriting process where you can make a lot of changes and you hear it and it you know. But all I could hear was just. The, the this enormous size coming back at me so that yeah. that was a huge thing I had to really get used to yeah. um it felt so naked and so so raw <laughs> to, yeah. to hear the words that way but the music um was so moving and and had just done 
something that I'd, I'd never heard or expected or anticipated with the language. And that was a complete thrill. Um, and then to see it all come together with, they had four musicians on stage, one of whom was Dan, he was playing piano and um, Jacob Ashworth, the music director was playing violin and conducting at the same time. Oh so to see all of these artists up there um, making something so beautiful out of this very bare bones thing I'd given them. Um, yeah, there was nothing like that in my life so far. <laughs> That's awesome. It's always nice to have those sort of watershed moments in your artistic career, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What have you, what, what do you think you've learned about your playwriting in the wake of adapting this play into a libretto? I think I've learned how voices operate musically, even when they're just speaking. Um, the need for how, let's say, a, a you know, a, a trio sounds different musically than than a duet, you know, in a, in a scene, and how just the the introduction of another voice can change the dynamic of a scene. Um, so I'm thinking about language. I think I always thought about language very musically, but I think even more so now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it'll change the way that you that you write in the future for, for in playwriting? Or do you think that it's just a it's sort of one of those things that'll just sort of keep you on the path that you're on? I think I think it'll change it'll change it a little bit. I think that once you have that kind of a realization about how voices operate uh, in you know in the kind of musical shading of of the sound of a piece, I think that's something you don't really return from. Yeah. Um, but I, I think definitely I I've. I, I may be less spare with my playwriting now um, because I, I know I know what the difference is essentially. Yeah. I think maybe I was always writing libretti and didn't know uh, <laughs> didn't know it. Yeah, you're, you're not the first person to say that. That's great. Um, are you interested in writing more libretti? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very, very much. So the bug hit you a little bit. <laughs> it did. Yeah. It really did. And I didn't know anything about, I mean, very little about new opera. And Mm so, you know, I think Louisa took me to a new opera a couple of years ago and I was waiting for the songs, you know, to start. Where are the songs? (laughs) It was totally, you know, it wasn't what I had heard before. And I think now I'm starting to learn more about it and um, the expressive potential that's, that's, that's in something that's so fluid and, and yeah, I'm, I'm really, really addicted to it. That's great. That's very cool. I, I, so thinking about theater, theater or opera, doesn't matter. Um, what, what are the stories you're interested in telling now? Do you have stories that are inside of you? Do you think that, that are waiting to come out? I mean, what, what, what's, what's on the future horizon for you? And I don't necessarily mean like actually happening, but where, where do you think you're going with your storytelling? I'm I'm really interested in shape shifting, um, in people that become animals, animals that become people. I don't I don't mean that in necessarily in a werewolf sense, but <laughs> or even really a sci-fi sense. Uh, there's an old folk tale about, um, or a Scottish folk tale, Scottish and Irish about um, selkies, you know, who are that they're seals yeah. who become people, and they they always kind of want to go back to the sea. And um, I've been working on a play about a, a selkie for a while, um, and that's. That, that kind of theme is something that really interests me and also strangely seems to have an ecological bent as well. Does, yeah. I'm also, I'm also really interested in stories that, um, that approach 
these personal narratives about climate, but that are not apocalyptic. So that are not dystopian fantasies, but are rather stories about people getting it right. Stories about mm. um, people, you know, doing doing good things in their own community. Um, that's also an area that, that really interests me and is excruciatingly difficult to, mm-hmm. to find models of that, yeah, actually. Right. Yeah, um, so you have to make them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I was thinking about Selkies is such a I'm so fascinated by all of those creatures of the sea that 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 go back and forth between sort of human form and you know, I I, I did a, a Pelias and Melisande a couple of years ago and really used the idea of Melusine, who is uh, the the mythological creature that, that on Saturdays turned into a, a mermaid. Um but also was reading about Selkie. I, I I did a Rusalka a couple of years ago too and was reading about Selkies and the thing that I found the most fascinating about selkies is that i read one place that you can tell you can tell that a human is a selkie because the hem of their dress is always wet and i thought that was the coolest thing that i i was like oh and so now i've like gone around like looking at people's jeans like when people have been like walking in puddles with their too long jeans i'm like oh look <laughs> selkie i love that and what right? a theatrical image that so is right what theatrical yeah so i just i i i love that you're 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 dealing with selkies cuz i was i was just so enamored with them you know i got this book on sort of all the sea creatures but they they had the imagery that they had given in that book was so cool so um, anyway, uh, thank you so much, uh, Amanda, for speaking with me today. This this was really great, and I cannot wait for the Extinctionist to to make its debut. Um, I'm thank really you. looking forward to that. Thank you, Katara. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Many thanks to Amanda Quaid for speaking with me. Our next episode is an interview with Bay Area librettist and composer Tony Asaro. He has two pieces upcoming. The Halloween Tree with Theo Popov, which has been in development with American Lyric Theater, and Zheng with Shinji Ishima about the life and work of the late mezzo-soprano Zheng Zhao. Thank you for listening. I'm Katoris Dikan. All of my episodes from every season are available at wordsfirst.buzzsprout.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Words First is recorded deep inside my office closet in Knoxville, Tennessee, a special thanks to Matthew Doucet, Elizabeth Coppinger, and Richard Stickham for their generous support. Urli Doucet for the logo, Eileen Downey for the Mozart, and Randy Ravioli for the minimal barking. Until next time, take care of each other, and keep telling stories. <laughs>